Well, about a year and a half ago, uh, near the very beginning of uh, the COVID pandemic, my great uncle, Warren Olson, passed away. And uh, my, my uncle Warren, he was uh, like another grandfather to me. Uh, he always took an interest in what was happening in my life. Uh, when we would get together, he, uh, we would talk about things ranging from theology to art to literature to ministry to family history and all kinds of other things. And so when my Uncle Warren passed away, it was hard not being able to be um, able to attend the under 10-person funeral in Minnesota that, that happened because of COVID. Um, but, you know, during that week leading up to the funeral, as I was reflecting on my Uncle Warren and his impact on my life, I also um, went digging through a box in our basement that had actually a bunch of handwritten letters that my Uncle Warren had written to me over the course of several years. And during that period of time, uh, he and I had written letters back and forth to each other. And, and as I reread these letters that he had written, um, I was so thankful that we had done that, that we had written these letters to each other. Because as I, as I read these letters, there was just this amazing wisdom and insight that just came through the pages, through the words uh, that, that he had written to me. And in every letter, there were two things that were so clear to me, his love for Jesus and his love for me. Uh, that my uncle loved me and, and, and he loved Jesus. And so these letters, as I read through them, they were truly letters of love. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series for the fall that is going to be looking at a letter, a letter in the New Testament. Um, and it's a letter that's written by the Apostle John. Um, as we're going to see, this letter that John writes is also filled with love. It is a letter of love. Um, and so this, the title of my uh, series that we're going to be looking at over the, the coming several weeks is First John, A Letter of Love. And today we're going to be looking at just the first four verses of First John um, and, and seeing kind of how John begins this letter to, to his recipients. Now before I read uh, these first four verses, you may notice when I read them that John's letter starts off very differently than a lot of Paul's letters. We have a lot of letters in the New Testament also written by the Apostle Paul. And John, when he starts his letter, he doesn't even mention his name at the beginning. Oftentimes in Paul's letters, he starts off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he begins, and then he says, to the church in, and says sort of the, the city that he's writing to. But in John, he doesn't mention his name. He doesn't mention who he's even writing to but he just launches into this opening prologue. And, and as you hear this prologue, these first four verses, you may notice that there are some similarities between John's opening of this letter and the gospel that John wrote, the gospel of John, uh, the prologue that John had there. And the heart of what John is saying in these first four verses um, is that he's talking about what he and his companions proclaim what they are announcing, what they are preaching, what they are communicating to the people who are receiving this letter. And as we're going to see, what John focuses on today is that he is proclaiming a person. He's proclaiming a person. Um, and that's my sermon title this morning, Proclaiming a Person. We're going to look at, at what, this, um, what this says, what, what John says about this proclamation and how it also relates to us in terms of how we are to hear this proclamation, and then also how we are called to proclaim as well. So our text today is uh, from 1 John 
chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 4. So hear God's word to us today. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Let's pray. God, open our ears, even as as John speaks about hearing with our ears, Lord, that we would hear today your word, that you would speak clearly, Lord, um, that you would proclaim this message deep into our hearts, that it would change us, so that we too would be vessels of yours to proclaim this message just as John was. Um, So speak to us now, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, uh, this letter that we call 1 John doesn't actually have John's name in it, identifying him as the author, but the earliest Christian testimony identified the author of this letter with the author of the fourth gospel, the the gospel of John, especially because there are many similarities in theme and in language that is used between this letter and the gospel of John. Uh, There are also two much shorter letters that follow this one in the Bible, 2 John and 3 John. Um, that are also attributed to the Apostle John by the early church, although those letters also don't, John doesn't mention his name. Now, I'm not going to get into all the technical arguments for this. Um, If you're really interested, you can ask me after the service. Um, But just to say that there is good reason to believe and trust that the Apostle John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, was the author of this letter, as well as the gospel and and the other two letters as well. And so as I talk about this, we're going to be talking about John as, as again, the author of, of this letter. And although John doesn't explicitly mention who he's writing to, as we go through this letter, it's going to become clear that John is writing primarily to Christians, to those who are believers in Christ, but Christians who he, he believes are in danger of being deceived. Christians who he's, he believes are in danger of being led astray. And so as we're going to go through the series, we'll see some of what these deceiving influences were that John was concerned about, that he's addressing in this letter as he's writing to these Christians um, uh, through this letter. But for today, we're going to be focusing on these four opening verses where John talks about uh, the heart of what he's going to say in this letter. So he's kind of giving this introduction to what what this letter is going to be about, Um, what he's going to say, why he's writing it as well. And, And the way that he talks about this is, as I mentioned, this, this verb, to proclaim. You'll hear, you, you, you hear that in these verses that John is talking about proclaiming. Um, that, that verb, proclaim, in the Greek, it, it, it means to, to announce something or to preach something. It, it's to give news of something. And so that is what John is doing in this letter. He is announcing, he is proclaiming something. And actually, as, as I said, we're going to be seeing that he's announcing, he's proclaiming someone. His message is a person. Um, And so what I want to look at today is is three things. First, the subject of John's proclamation. Then the basis for his proclamation. 
and then the purpose of his proclamation. So the subject of it, the basis for it, and the purpose of it. So first, the subject of John's proclamation. What is the subject? What is it that he's proclaiming? Jesus. That's right. That's the person. Surprise. <laughs> he's proclaiming Jesus. He's proclaiming Jesus Christ. Um, John actually doesn't mention Jesus' name, though, until the end of verse 3. But in verses 1 and 2, he is speaking about someone, and, and he's describing who Jesus is, although he doesn't quite come out and say it until he mentions his name in verse 3. Now this, if you notice, this is actually very similar to how John begins his gospel. When he starts the gospel off, he doesn't mention Jesus by name initially. What he does is he describes the word. Um, so I want to read to you the beginning of John's gospel, right? The beginning of John's gospel. He starts his gospel off by saying this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he speaks about this word, this logos, that, that was with God, that, that was God. Listen now to how John starts his letter. He starts off the letter by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You notice that? See the similarities, the, the, the language, right? He talks about that which is from the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And he says, this we proclaim concerning the word, the word of life. So, so John is, is he's starting off his letter in very similar ways to how he starts his gospel. But then in John's gospel, he goes on to say, this amazing thing about this word, he says, the word became flesh. The word, something that we would associate normally with something that we hear, he says that this word became flesh. It became human being that you could touch and, and, and see. And here at the beginning of, of his letter, what does John say? He says not only this, this thing that we have heard, but he also says we have seen with our eyes which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we, 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 we proclaim concerning the word of life. So John here is saying that this word, it's not just a, a word, it's not just a verbal word, but it's actually a person. That the word is a person. And specifically, it's Jesus. And what he says about Jesus in these first couple verses are really important. Because we're going to see this later on in the letter, that John is concerned about people who are denying certain things about Jesus. As I mentioned, part of what he's doing is he's addressing believers who he's concerned might be led astray or, or deceived. And so John here, when he starts off his letter and he talks about Jesus, he's addressing concerns that he has about what other people around these believers are saying about Jesus. So I want to look at just two things that he addresses about Jesus here in these opening verses. The first thing he says is that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of verse 1, John identifies Jesus as the word of life, which was from the beginning. So G Jesus was not just a man who was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. No, he says that this word who became flesh, this, this one, he has existed from the beginning. He is the word that was with God and was God. In verse 2, John continues, the life appeared. We have seen it. 
and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So here, here John calls Jesus not just the word of life, but he actually calls him the life, that he is the life itself. Um, this is actually something that Jesus talks about himself in these terms, um, that John records actually in his gospel. In John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. Um, let's look up, let's pull up that next verse three there. Yeah, that, that we have, um, I am the resurrection and the life. And then, um, and then right after that, later on in John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, right? So we'll throw up that next verse where we see that Jesus says he is also, again, the life. Jesus says that he is life itself. He is life itself. This is a claim beyond anything that any human being could claim, right? To say that I am the life. I'm the source of all life. And that's exactly what John is saying in this letter, that Jesus is the life. He is God. He's God. Later in this letter, we're going to see that John is concerned about those who denied that Jesus was the Son of God. That there were people saying that Jesus was, he was a good man, maybe a wise man, but that, but, but that was it. There, there are people who are trying to deceive Christians into lowering their understanding of Jesus, to think of him as less than fully God. And so John emphasizes right at the beginning of this letter that Jesus is fully God. He is God incarnate. He's from the beginning, with the Father. He is life. He is eternal. But then he says that Jesus is also fully human. He is fully human. He says that this word, this, this life, appeared to us. That the one who is fully God came and lived with John and with his other disciples. And this is, a, this is part of the significance of what John says in verse 1 about this word of life where he says that we've heard we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at, and our hands have touched that Jesus, he was a flesh and blood human being who they could touch, who they could see, who they could hear. And when, when John wrote this letter, there were some people who were denying that Jesus was fully human. Um, and, and there were some people that actually were creating this, this sharp distinction between the spiritual and the physical. It said that the spiritual is good, the physical is bad. And so, so if Jesus was, was this, this, this amazing son of God, then he couldn't be connected with the physical world. He couldn't be dirtied by the material world. And so there, there's a, a philosophy that actually developed after this that was called Gnosticism, that, that divided up the spiritual from the physical and said that only spiritual things are good, physical things are bad. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that he created the world and he said it's very good. He created a physical world and, and God himself came in the flesh to be a human being. These, these, these other teachers said that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't actually human. And one of the things that followed from that was that they said that Jesus, he didn't actually suffer or die. Because a spiritual being couldn't suffer or die. 
And that robs the power of what Jesus came to do. He came to suffer. He came to die as a human being, as one of us, to be our substitute, to take our place and to die for us. And so we're going to see that that throughout this letter, John makes it very clear that Jesus was not just a spiritual being. He was also a physical being. He was fully human. And later on, he actually even says that a sign of the Spirit of God is that the Spirit of God testifies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Came in the flesh. And back, back again in John's Gospel, John says the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. So Jesus was a fully human man who grew up, who experienced pain, who felt the full range of human emotions, who got hungry and tired, so he can identify with us. And he needed to be fully human in order to be our substitutes, in order to take our place and die in our place on the cross. It is so crucial for us today to hold these two truths together. This is crucial, that we, that we affirm that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Because even today, 2,000 years later, there are people in our world who want to deny one or of those statements. There are people who will say, no, no, well, Jesus, he was a good man. He was a great teacher. He was wise. He was a prophet, but, but are unwilling to say that he was actually God. And there are other people who the way they talk about Jesus is, is to, to, to not want him to, to be fully human, to, to, to experience all of what we've experienced in our lives, even though he was a perfect human being. And so both are true and both are necessary in order for Jesus to be our savior, in order for him to give us eternal life. He had to be fully God. He had to be fully human. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. Now, before I move on to the next point, I just want to highlight one, one more thing about what, what John says that, that's significant about the fact that John says his proclamation is a person. Um, and Cherie, you can just move on to the next slide because you can get ready for the one that's coming in a, in a moment. Um, John is proclaiming a person, right? What does that mean? He's not primarily proclaiming a philosophy. He's not proclaiming a code of morals. He's not proclaiming a political agenda. He's not proclaiming a list of do's and don'ts. He's proclaiming a person, a person. The heart of Christianity is not any of those other things. It's not a philosophy. It's not a code of morals. It's not a political philosophy. The heart of Christianity is a person. It's Jesus Christ, who we are invited to to know, to be in relationship with, the Jesus who has come to save us and to know us. Earlier this week, the, uh, the comedian Norm MacDonald um, died from cancer. Norm MacDonald, some of you may know from, from Saturday Night Live. He was a con- comedian. And, um, and Pastor Eric Sorensen, who's a pastor in our denomination, he's pastoring currently in New Jersey. He, he was a pastor of Epiphany Church in Manhattan. Um, he wrote an article a couple years ago that he titled, The Gospel According to Norm. The Gospel According to Norm MacDonald. And, uh, and in the article... Um, Eric referenced an interview that Norm MacDonald had done um, with someone. And in this interview, Norm was actually talking about the pastor of the church that he was attending at the time. Um, And and this is what Norm said about this pastor. Uh, He says, my pastor doesn't know anything. (laughs) I mean anything. Uh, He says, "He's, he's just a pleasant guy. 
If you ask him a direct question, he'll go, what, didn't you hear my sermon? But his sermon, he says, his sermon's always like how to be a nice fella or some nonsense. Now, in the article, Eric um, kind of makes this, this disclaimer. says, like, he doesn't know who this pastor is, right, and exactly how Norm is describing him or what church he's a part of. But what Eric points out in this article is that Norm's impression of this pastor and the focus of the pastor's sermons is how to be a nice fella, right? How to be a nice fella. And, and Norm McDonald says, you know what? If that's the heart of what, your ser- what a sermon is, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. And, and so, because the message of Christianity is not how to be a nice fella. It's not. The message of Christianity is, is that we need a savior, that we're broken, that we're sinners, that we need someone to come and rescue us. The heart of Christianity, it's, it's not a message about what we should do. It is a message of what Christ has done for us. And that is the subject of John's proclamation. It's Jesus. My hope and prayer is that when you listen to my sermons, you don't come away saying, Andy told us how to be a nice fella or a nice gal or whatever, you know, whatever the equivalent of that might be, right? My hope and prayer is that when I preach, that you hear a proclamation of Jesus that we need to hear every week, every day. What he's done for us and how that transforms us. And that's what we're called to proclaim too, to the world. We are not called to proclaim a philosophy, a political agenda, a code of morals. We're called to proclaim Jesus, a person, Jesus Christ, and him crucified and risen as our savior. Now, the second thing I wanna look at is the basis for John's proclamation. The basis for John's proclamation, which is seeing and hearing. Just, and just fair warning, these next two points are very short, okay? So just in case you're worried, okay? They're not as long as that first point, um, just, just to prepare you. So the second point here, he says, is that what's the basis of John's proclamation? It is seeing and hearing. Um, what's the basis of, G, of, of John saying that Jesus is both fully God and fully human? What's the basis of what John's going to write in this letter? It is, in the beginning of verse 3, John says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. That's the basis for what he's saying here. What John says here is, is not some fairy tale that he made up. It isn't a fable that's meant to communicate a moral lesson. What John says about Jesus here is based on what he himself has seen and heard. He's seen it. He's heard it. He's touched with his own hands. John was an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And from what John saw and heard, he testifies, Jesus is the word of life. This one who I walked with for three years of ministry, he's not just a man. He's the word of life. He is God incarnate. John heard Jesus make extraordinary claims that he is the way, the truth, and the life. John saw Jesus turn water into wine and and heal the sick and the blind and feed a crowd of 5,000 men and raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw those things. John touched the nail-pierced hands of Jesus after he had risen from the dead. And he was still a physical human being, although resurrected. The people 
who John was writing to probably hadn't seen and heard Jesus in the flesh. His audience he's writing to probably hadn't. And so what, Jesus, what John is wanting to make clear to them is he says, guys, I've seen him. I've heard him. And he's testifying to what he has seen and he's heard. And this is very similar to the scripture reading that, that, that Margaret read earlier in the service where the apostle Peter, another one of the disciples, writes in one of his letters in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, we didn't make this stuff up. We were eyewitnesses. In many ways, we are actually in a very similar situation to the recipients of John's letter because we too have not seen with our eyes and touched with our hands and heard with our ears the physical person of Jesus Christ walking here on earth in the flesh, right? Who, who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. But we have the written testimony of those who did. We have the written testimony of John and Peter and Matthew and James. We have Luke's gospel, who, who Luke talks about how the events of Jesus' life, he says, they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That's what Luke says at the beginning of his gospel. You can hit that slide with that one, Sheree. And so we can trust that what we read about Jesus in the New Testament is coming from people who were there, people who walked with Jesus, who, who, who listened to him. And when those individuals wrote down what they happened, they were writing at a time when other people were living, were still living, who also had been around. And at the time of Jesus. If the disciples were trying to convince people to believe in Jesus, but they were writing stories that they had made up, that's not a very convincing way to try to convince people when there are other people who could have easily said, that didn't happen. No, I was there. No, these authors were writing about Jesus, about what they had seen and heard, even at the same time that there were other people living who could corroborate that, that witness. And so the gospel accounts that we have, they're true, even though there's a lot in them that may be challenging for us to believe since Jesus performed miracles. He did things that are not ordinary that we see every day. But guess what? If Jesus is who he claimed he was, if he is the son of God, if he is fully God and fully man, don't you think we actually might expect some pretty amazing things to have happened when he walked on earth? That he would have done some pretty amazing things and said some pretty amazing things? Now, the third and final thing I want to look at today is the purpose of John's proclamation. So the subject of his proclamation is Jesus. The basis of his proclamation is what he's seen and heard. So why is he proclaiming this? What is the purpose? Well, John says in these opening verses, the purpose is fellowship. Fellowship. In verse 3, John says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now, the Greek word that is translated fellowship, and we'll throw up that slide there, uh, Sheree, with that, that verse there. Um, the, the, the Greek word that's translated fellowship is the word koinonia. And, and this word koinonia, it means having something in common, sharing in something, communion with each other, union together. So it's not just talking about 
hanging out together. Sometimes in the church, we might talk about fellowship as like having coffee or something like that, or, you know, the fellowship hour. But this is talking about something much deeper. Fellowship is talking about deeply sharing our lives with one another. Community. Um, Why would John's proclamation of Jesus lead to that? Lead to fellowship? Lead to communion? Well, this is going to be one of the main themes of this letter. So I'm not going to dig into it too much today. But one of the things that John makes very clear in this letter is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you hear this message and you believe it and you trust it, you've experienced God's love and salvation in your, in your life, it leads to a deep love for one another. It leads to a deep love for those who are also believers in Christ. It transforms our relationships. And a big reason that John is writing this letter is to encourage his readers to experience that. Experience this deep love and commitment and unity with one another that is rooted in love. He wants them to have that kind of fellowship with him, he says. And then he, but then he goes on in the, in the rest of verse 3 to say, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Hit that next slide. The fellowship and communion that, that, that John is talking about here is not just a generic, we, we all love each other kind of thing, like, Kumbaya, but the fellowship, it's based on a fellowship with God too. That's the center of our fellowship. And and, and again, here John is coming back to that central proclamation. What's the center of it? It's all about Jesus. Any fellowship among Christians that does not have Christ at the center, it's not Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is rooted in our fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ. And this is another reason he's writing this letter, to ensure that his readers are both united in love and united with Christ. And so one of my hopes for this series over these coming weeks is that as we listen to John's proclamation, that we will be drawn deeper into fellowship with one another as a body, both with each other and also with him, with Jesus And I hope that we will see the deep connection between God's love and our love for each other. And the very last thing that that we already have the verse up up here is the very last verse, verse 4, that John ends this whole, this introduction with, is he says this, we write this to make our joy complete. John, he finds joy in this. He finds joy in proclaiming Christ. He finds joy in in inviting people into fellowship with with each other. He finds joy in in speaking about what he's seen and heard. And he says that that if he hadn't written this letter, his joy would be incomplete. He says, I'm writing this to you to make my joy complete, to make our joy complete, that, 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 that you would know who Jesus is, that you would know the fellowship that he wants for you. There would be something missing in John's joy if he hadn't written this letter. And so a question just for you to to hang out with at at the end of this message is, where do you find your joy? Where do you look for joy in your life? What do you look to fill up your joy, to make your joy complete in your life? Does it come from what John is talking about here? Does it come from Jesus? 
Does it come from proclaiming Jesus? Do you feel like if I don't share about Jesus, there's gonna be something missing in my life? Does it come from inviting others to experience this fellowship and love of God with you? Or do you look to other things for joy? And I know for all of us, we can probably identify some of the other things in our life that we often look to for joy, things that will never give the completeness of the joy that the gospel brings. And so as we go through this series, I'm praying that God will complete my joy as I get to share this message with you all, as I get to talk about John's letter. But my prayer also is that that God will complete your joy over these coming weeks as as you soak in, again, this, this message of who Christ is, what he's done for you, and how he is calling us to also find joy in proclaiming the message. As we heard earlier, the Gideons is doing right now in our city, that we are called to find joy in sharing and proclaiming a person, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've come to us, that you are fully God, you are fully human, you came into our world to to do what no other human being could do and to do it in our place as one of us. You've come to save us. You've come to show us the full extent of your love. And Lord, as we grasp the, 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 the fullness of that, we pray that it would bring us joy and that it would send us out to proclaim this message to others, to proclaim what we have seen and heard in our own lives, that we have seen you at work, we've seen your, your word come alive to us, that we've heard your message, and that you'd give us words to proclaim that to the people in our lives. So thank you, Jesus, that you've given us yourself as a person to proclaim, and use us, Lord, to do that, just as John did to his audience, to proclaim you, fully God, fully man, our Savior, our Lord. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.